Well, welcome to this morning's time of worship. We're delighted that you're able to join us and to be together as a family. On Friday morning, there was uh, just a little word from the scriptures um, along the lines of what Chad will be sharing later, where Jesus spoke of himself as a mother hen gathering the chicks under her wings. But he said to the people of Israel that they were not willing. Well, it seems as though that willingness of heart that David speaks about in Psalm 51 that sustains us, a willing spirit that sustains us, is a, is a real key for us at this time. So as we enter worship today, let's be willing and open our hearts to the Lord.
Psalm 103, verse 1 says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Lord, thank you that you are all that we need in this time. Thank you, Lord, that your presence with us is without question. Thank you, Lord, that you are a promise-keeping God. Lord, many of us desire different things at this time, probably to be out in the open air and doing the normal things that we would be about at this time, especially the children and young people. Lord, we pray that you would fill our desires with good things, good things that will strengthen our hearts and minds, good things that will strengthen our families and our friendships, good things, Lord, that will cause our walk with you to grow deeper and to be a walk that is able to continue longer. Lord, we pray that during this time we would know a willing spirit that sustains us, that we, Lord, would know you in a deeper and fuller way. We pray, Lord, as we prepare our hearts for your word this morning, that you, Lord, would speak deeply to us and prepare us for the continuing of the days ahead and all that you want to do in us and through us. We pray, Jesus, that as we focus on those relationships around us and, and Lord, understand that our mission right now is to build out the family that you've given us, whether they be blood relationships or non-blood relationships. We pray, Lord, that family as our mission would become family on mission as the doors open. Lord, may this time be a preparation time for great days of harvest and outpouring ahead. We pray it, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, we'll, uh, of course, be seeing you through the rest of the week. And um, you'll have noticed on the website that we have a schedule of all kinds of things through the day. Really, the purpose of that is twofold. The first is to maintain connection. The morning prayer time over Zoom means that we can see each other face to face. And lots of other times of connection make that possible your times with your house churches through Zoom and Skype and, and telephone and, and uh, all kinds of other uh, means of connection. That's tremendously important at this time. So connection is important and also structure. The predictable patterns that give us and our children and the people for whom we're responsible a sense of security and continuity at this time. So we want to offer that that structure to the day. You don't have to do the things in the time that they are uh, identified 
on that outline on the front page of the website. But maybe in time, you'll find that helpful as well. Anyway, God bless. And uh, we look forward to what Chad has to say to us a little bit later on. Good morning, Apex. My name is Chad Osborne. I think most of you know me, but some of you who are new to our church might not be as familiar with me. But I've been on staff at Apex for more than a decade in various roles. But um, in the years before Mike came, I was part of a rotation of preachers. So I am excited to get to share with you today, even though I don't get to see uh, your faces. And uh, I do hope that that changes here sooner rather than later. Today we're going to continue in our series on the Gospel of Luke. We'll be finishing up Luke chapter 13. But first, there is a story in Greek mythology about a beautiful princess named Cassandra. She was the daughter of the king of Troy. And the Greek god Apollo had, was quite taken with her. And so he offered her the gift of being able to see the future. But of course, his feelings for her changed when she refused some of his romantic advances. And so he decides to put a curse on her. And the curse was, she would still be able to see the future, but now nobody would believe her. And so Cassandra becomes this tragic figure of seeing horrible things happen, and yet nobody heeding her warnings. She saw, she foresaw the destruction of Troy and you know, she warned about those Greeks hiding out in a wooden horse, but yet people went on with life as usual. And of course, these, there's stories of unheeded warnings throughout history. There's a man named Cyril Evans who was a wireless operator on a British steamship called the Californian. And in 1912, they were sailing in the North Atlantic, and Cyril Evans was instructed to message the nearby ships that there were icebergs in the area. And of course, one of the ships that received the message from Cyril Evans was the Titanic. Now, the wireless operator of the Titanic, his name was Jack Phillips. And Jack Phillips was so busy handling and relaying the messages of the passengers that he essentially told Cyril Evans to leave me alone and stop distracting me from doing my job. So the message never made it to the bridge of the Titanic. And so Cyril Evans takes off his headset, goes to bed, and 10 minutes later, the Titanic hits an iceberg. In the 1980s, a mechanical engineer named Roger Beaujoli warned that the space shuttle, the Challenger, should not be launched in cold temperatures. He had a concern about the O-rings and the rocket boosters. But, of course, he was proved correct on January 28, 1986, as 73 seconds after the Challenger launched, it exploded, killing its seven passengers. And of course, with what we're dealing with today, we're receiving all sorts of warnings. You know, we're warned to stay at home and 
not go into large crowds and that we need to wash our hands and that if we don't, hospitals will be overrun, more people will die and this thing is just gonna linger all the longer. But of course, there are also warnings in the scripture and sometimes these warnings were unheeded by God's people. In our passage today in Luke 13, we have Jesus lamenting over the fact that God's people have not heeded the warnings. So in Luke 13, this is, you know, after Luke chapter 9, when Jesus has begun his long journey toward Jerusalem. At this point, most commentators believe Jesus is either in Galilee to the north of Jerusalem or, to, or in Perea to the east of Jerusalem. And it begins with a conversation with the Pharisees. Verse 31 of Luke 13 is that at, at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. So this passage begins with the Pharisees warning Jesus. And what we don't know is their motives behind this. After all, the Gospels portray Jesus and the Pharisees as having this contentious relationship. So are they just trying to get Jesus out of their hair or... Are they sincere? We don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus did not heed their warning because their warning did not fit his agenda. Dying far away from Jerusalem under the order of Herod was not part of his plan. But he lays out his plan. He, de he, he describes his mission. He, he, he describes it as you know, I'm going to cast out demons and I'm going to heal people. I'm going to heal people of their diseases and ailments. But what we have here is Jesus saying, I'm going to deal with spiritual evil and I'm also going to deal with physical evil. And both of these things are enemies of humanity that are introduced at the fall back in Genesis 3 where, you know, we have... Um, mankind rebelling against God, but they had help with that. You know, they had this temper, tempter, this serpent, uh, who was a spiritual being in rebellion against its creator. And so, of course, later in the scriptures, this serpent is identified as the Satan. And of course, the Satan doesn't act alone as uh, the only spiritual enemy of humans. He has, um, spiritual, a whole network of spiritual evil underneath him. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. He said, I'm going to overcome spiritual evil. But also in Genesis 3, Jesus says to the man, you know, you came from dust and to dust you shall return. You're going to die. And usually, you know, people don't just drop dead out of, because of nothing. They usually die from something. They usually die of a disease or some sort of physical ailment. And so here we have introduced his physical evil. And so Jesus is saying, 
spiritual evil and physical evil are distortions of God's shalom. You know, shalom is, is um, wholeness, completeness, everything as it was meant to be. And that's how God designed the world. And those things break God's shalom. So Jesus, in dealing with physical and spiritual evil, he's bringing shalom back to creation. And notice what he says. He says, on the third day, I will reach my goal. What does Jesus mean by the third day? It could be that he's saying, he's talking about a succession of time, like I'm going to do this today, tomorrow, and the next day. Or by the third day, he could be talking about what he mentioned in Luke chapter 9 to his disciples when he said, um, the Son of Man will be rejected by the religious leaders, handed over to the Gentiles, where he will be killed. But on the third day, I will rise again. And so Jesus' resurrection is the defeat of spiritual and physical evil. But of course, we can today say like, well, Jesus resurrected about you know, 2,000 years ago, but obviously there's still physical and spiritual evil in the world today. Well, theologians say that the resurrection of Jesus is the inauguration of the kingdom of God on earth. But that's in this kind of already and not yet sent, not yet sense. It is, it has begun, but not yet completed. It's like the yeast is now part of the dough, but has not yet taken its full effect. And we await that with Jesus's second coming. But Jesus is convinced that he's going to do this work and complete this work in Jerusalem. He says, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Now, obviously, Jesus is using hyperbole here, for there were prophets who did die outside of Jerusalem, but he was convinced that for himself, it was appropriate for him to die in Jerusalem. So he, here, he focuses on Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing look your house is left to you desolate i tell you you will not see me again until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord so it's interesting in the the first part of the passage we have jesus not heeding the warnings of the Pharisees because they don't fit his agenda. But after all, Jesus as the creator has both the right and wisdom to set the agenda. But here we have Jerusalem not heeding the warnings of God through the prophets because these warnings did not fit Jerusalem's agenda. And we need to see the irony here. I mean, after all, Jerusalem was the center, the religious center of Israel. It's where all the religious activity happened. After all, it's where the temple was. It's where God's presence was meant to dwell. And, you know, every family in Israel would take multiple trips to Jerusalem each year to celebrate the various feasts. And yet, somehow, they didn't recognize the voice of God through the prophets. 
Now, this is doubly ironic when you put this next to something like the story of Jonah. Jonah was sent to the Assyrian city Nineveh, a city not of God's covenant people. And Jonah wasn't even all that keen to go. And you'll notice that, you know, the message that he preached, he said, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. I mean, this is like the worst sermon ever, you know, and yet it was a very effective sermon for Nineveh repented. In fact, they repented so thoroughly that even their animals fasted. And, and it's really surprising when you consider the brutality of the Assyrian Empire that they didn't stone Jonah. But yet, yeah, compare that with Jerusalem. They weren't sent only one prophet. They were sent prophet after prophet after prophet. And they rejected what God had to say through the prophets. They they killed and stoned the prophets. So what we have here is that Jerusalem has run away from God's truth. Of course, this is a story that has repeated itself throughout the scriptures. We see at the very beginning, it's a story that we mentioned before with Adam and Eve. Humanity rejects what God has to say and listens to another voice. They reject God as their king. They don't want to rule as co-rulers with him. They want to rule by their own authority. And as a result, they are exiled from the garden, away from this cosmic temple. So they are exiled away from God's temple presence. Later, this story is recapitulated or repeated with the story of Israel in the Old Testament. Israel does not believe the word of God through the prophets. They reject God as their king. And as a result, they are exiled into Babylon as Babylon destroys the temple. And yet here, yet again, Jerusalem in the first century, they reject what God has to say through Jesus. They reject God as their king by rejecting the Messiah. And as a result, in 70 AD, they would be scattered away from Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed, this time by the Romans. And notice Jesus's reaction to this. He isn't happy about this at all. He's, he's grieved by this. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's kind of this way of, it's, it's like how a parent grieves over a child. It's Many have compared this to when King David grieves over his son, Absalom, Absalom. And so Jesus tells Jerusalem, you know, your, your house is left desolate. You know, God has removed his protective hand over you because you have refused it. And so now it's like this Romans 1 scenario where God hands them over to their sin and the consequences come after that. But Jesus says, Jerusalem, I have longed to gather you your children under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks. He's saying, I want to provide you with parental care and provision and protection. He's, he's essentially saying that you either, you, your options are you either submit to my rule, which looks like parental care 
or you'll be ruled over by foxes. You know, after all, you know, when a, when a baby chick is far away from their mother, they are vulnerable, aren't they? They're vulnerable to predators, predators like foxes. So Jesus says, if you will not be under my wing, if you will not be under my parental care, you will be ruled over by foxes, foxes like Herod, foxes like Pontius Pilate, foxes like the Roman emperor. And in 70 AD, Jerusalem found out what it's like when chicks are ruled over by foxes. So what might be the word that God has for us today through this passage? After all, we don't live in Jerusalem. We are not facing this impending threat of the Roman Empire destroying our city. So, but what might God have to say to us today? Well, remember how this story repeats itself, how both you know, Jerusalem and Israel, as well as Adam and Eve, have rejected God as their king and have run away from God's truth. Well, you know who else who's done this? Do you know who else has run away from God's truth? I have. And don't be offended when I say this to you, but you have too. Romans 3 says that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And every sin begins by us believing a lie. After all, that's, you know, that's how sin entered the world, is that humanity believed a lie. They stopped trusting in the word of God and believed another voice. You know, in Romans 1 talks about how we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Martin Luther says it this way. He says that the sin underneath our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent, that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands. So we tell ourselves things like, my life will be complete if, my life would be better if, I would be happier if, and whatever we fill in the blank with becomes our functional savior. We tell ourselves, my life would be complete if I had wealth. And we believe this with such conviction that eventually it no longer matters how we obtain wealth, that the ends will justify the means, even if that means we compromise what is right. We tell ourselves, I will be happier, my life will be better if I can get this group of people to like me, if I get their approval. And I recognize I may have to compromise what I know is right in order to get their approval, but in the end, it'll be worth it. We tell ourselves, my life would be complete in this moment if I could just get this chemical rush of dopamine in my body that's available to me in this pill or in this syringe or, or through the images on my laptop. We tell ourselves, my life would be better if I were to pursue a relationship with this person instead of pursuing my spouse. We tell ourselves, you know, I need to get this person to believe something that isn't true of me. And so we believe the lie, that a lie will be good for us. 
we believe that things would be better if we were in control, if we were calling the shots. Believe it or not, and we may never say this out loud, but so often we think that we are wiser than God and that we know how things ought to go. We also buy into a lie that's related to the lie that the, that the, human, that the first humans believed, the lie from the tempter that, you know, you are not reaching your full potential because God is holding out on you. God is keeping things from you. And so we believe that following God and following his commandments, that God is being restrictive that, and that we want to pursue freedom. Freedom has become this like ultimate value. And we have begun to define freedom as the ability to do whatever you want. But in reality, that definition of freedom is actually unlivable. It's because your wants will eventually be in conflict with each other. Take, for example, a grandfather who wants to watch his grandchildren grow up. But he also wants to be able to eat his favorite foods. <laughs> Within a trip to the doctor, he learns, well, the doctor says, your blood pressure tells me you need to make some changes in your diet. So he's going to have to restrict himself in one area of his life in order to have freedom in another area of his life. It's really about choosing the best kinds of freedom. Or take, for example, an elite athlete. You know, in order for this athlete to be able to have the freedom to be a top performer on the field, this person has to say no to a lot of other things. They have to restrict themselves from impulsive late night hangouts with their friends because becoming an elite athlete requires lots of practice. Or I think of even musicians. I remember I was in the band at Apex for seven years as a drummer. And in order for me to be free behind the drum kit on Sunday mornings, I had to restrict myself and say no to a lot of things for rehearsal on Thursday nights. So a lot of the times we have to put restrictions on ourselves in order to gain freedom. And that's what God is doing. When God gives us commands, they may feel restricting to us, but the purpose of them is our joy and our liberation. It's because God knows how he designed things. He knows how things work best. So when God tells us, have no other gods before me, when God tells us to be faithful to our spouse, when God tells us to enjoy food and drink, but not to overindulge, or when he tells us to not overwork, but have rhythms of rest in our life, and when he tells us to be sure that our relationships have honesty and integrity in them, those aren't just arbitrary restrictions. He's doing that ultimately for our freedom and for our joy and because he knows that's how things work best. Ravi Zacharias says that freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. It's the strength to do what you ought. Freedom is having the will to, of, to do the right thing. It's when duty becomes choice. And if we want to be free from God, we find ourselves enslaved 
to a thousand other things. And we, we recognize this as parents. We know we have to put restrictions on our children, but we do so for their good. You know, especially those of us with toddlers, we, we say, you know, don't, we don't want them to climb chairs. We don't want them to climb tables or kitchen counters because it's not safe. It's, it's I'm saying no to you climbing right now because I want you to have the freedom to be able to walk someday. Or even, you know, just this past week with the stay at home order, we had to postpone some plans that our children had with their friends. And, and we had to explain to them carefully that, you know, look, you know, we want you to have fun. We want you to be happy. But now is not the right time to do this. We, want, we have to say no to a play date today so that we can say yes to many play dates in the future. And so these restrictions, these commands of God are for our benefit. And so we learn to obey God when we recognize our identity as children of God. And, and when we recognize that God is a good father who wants what's best for us and is for us and wants our joy. But once we stop believing that, when we get that wrong, when we think of God as somebody who's holding out on us, when we think of God as somebody who is neglecting us and has abandoned us, we then live out of that identity. And then chaos ensues. I think that perhaps the word that God has for us today can be summarized uh, in a sentence, that, that this sermon can be summarized in a sentence. And that is God telling us, my parental care for you warns us against destructive lies and leads you to my liberating love. I'll say that again. My parental care for you warns you away from destructive lies and leads you to my liberating love. But perhaps there's another application we can take from this passage today when we consider the fact that Jerusalem, once again, was the center of religious life in Israel. You know, there were people in Jerusalem who knew the Old Testament forward and backwards. They had it memorized. And yet, when the word of God came in the flesh and looked them right in the face, they didn't recognize him. It's as the prophet said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And how many testimonies have we heard of people today who say, you know, I, I knew the right doctrines. I knew what all the big words meant. I went to a Bible-believing, you know, gospel-preaching church, and yet I missed Jesus. I knew a lot about God, but I didn't know God. So I wonder if any of you watching today are playing with religion and my motive here isn't to get us all to fear and to question our salvation, but perhaps it is appropriate for us to take some spiritual inventory and to examine our lives, especially at a time like now when a lot of us have a bit more time on our hands. The Archbishop William Temple has said something that's a bit instructive in this regard. He said that when you don't have to think of anything, when your mind isn't being taken to think by the environment, where does your mind go? 
What gives you the most comfort to fantasize about? That is your God. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. So maybe in this time where we have more time and time to reflect, maybe we'll discover what our deepest desires are and what our true affections are for. And perhaps some of you in this season, this season where we think of this, maybe you'll recognize that you know a lot about God, but you don't actually know God. And my prayer is that in this time, in this time of self-isolation, in this time of restriction, you will discover the freedom of the liberating love of Jesus. Apex, I, I want to speak to you as a brother now, you know, as someone who's been around Apex since 2002. Um, we have certainly <laughs> been through some interesting times over the last three years, have we not? Seasons of disorientation. And what I mean by that is there are things that we've experienced that we're not used to and things that aren't all that comfortable. And we've experienced that as a church. We've experienced that in our city with the events of last year with the tornadoes and the shooting at the Oregon district. And now we're experiencing disorientation on a global scale. And we could, it's, it'd be easy for us to wonder, you know, like, what is God doing here? Like what is going on behind the curtain? And in these confusing and uncertain times, we can just really be thinking like, what is going on? But we should take comfort in knowing this, whatever is going on with us collectively or individually, whatever hardship we're facing, we do know what the reason is not. And the reason is not that God lacks any love for you. And we know this because of Jesus's determination to go to Jerusalem and die on the cross for your sins and for mine and to rise again from the dead to bring God's shalom back to his creation. We know that he loves us. And so again, in these confusing and uncertain times, we don't have to be confused or uncertain about God's parental love for us. So let us take comfort in that in this time. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we pray that you would be glorified in our lives. And Lord, we pray that your kingdom would manifest itself on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, we pray to know your parental care for us, your provision and your protection. We pray specifically that you provide for those who through this pandemic are, have lost out on income. And Lord, we pray that you would protect us from the lies of the enemy, the lies of the evil one. Protect us from believing those things and lead us in your liberating love. Let us be a light in the world during this time. And Lord, I do pray that many people come to you through this. I, I've heard from my friend Emma Garcia that just as the toilet paper aisles are empty and the hand sanitizer aisles are empty, she's also noticed that some of the places that sell Bibles, a lot of the Bible aisles are empty. And so I pray that uh, that as is an indication that people 
are open to you and that they're wanting to discover you through their word. So God, I pray you reveal yourself to many in this time. We thank you, we love you, and we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Bless you all.